Chapter Four of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four One The clerks have invited some folks to their house to meet us tonight, said Kennicott as he unpacked his suitcase. Oh, that is nice of them. You bet. I told you you'd like them. Square as people on earth. Um, Carrie. Would you mind if I sneak down to the office for an hour, just to see how things are?" "'Why, no, of course not. I know you've been keen to get back to work. Sure you don't mind?' "'Not a bit. Out of my way. Let me unpack.' But the advocate of freedom in marriage was as much disappointed as a drooping bride at the alacrity with which he took that freedom and escaped through the world of men's affairs. She gazed about their bedroom, and its full dismalness crawled over her. The awkward knuckly L-shape of it, the black walnut bed with apples and spotty pears carved on the headboard, the imitation maple bureau with pink-daubed scent-bottles and a petticoated pincushion on a marble slab uncomfortably like a gravestone, the plain pine washstand and the garlanded water-pitcher and bowl. The scent was of horsehair and plush and Florida water. How could people ever live with things like this?" she shuddered. She saw the furniture as a circle of elderly judges, condemning her to death by smothering. The tottering brocade chairs squeaked, "'Choke her! Choke her! Smother her!' The old linen smelled of the tomb. She was alone in this house, this strange, still house, among the shadows of dead thoughts and haunting repressions. "'I hate it! I hate it!' she panted. Why did I ever—? She remembered that Kennicott's mother had brought these family relics from the old home in Lac Wemure. Stop it! They're perfectly comfortable things. They're comfortable. Besides—' Oh, they're horrible. We'll change them right away. Then— But of course he has to see how things are at the office. She made a pretense of busying herself with unpacking. The chintz-lined, silver-fitted bag, which had seemed so desirable a luxury in St. Paul, was an extravagant vanity here. The daring black chemise of frail chiffon and lace was a hussy at which the deep-bosomed bed stiffened in disgust, and she hurled it into a bureau drawer, hid it beneath a sensible linen blouse. She gave up unpacking. She went to the window, with a purely literary thought of village charm, hollyhocks and lanes and apple-cheeked cottagers. What she saw was the site of the Seventh-day Adventist church, a plain clabbered wall of a sour liver color, the ash-piled back of the church, an unpainted stable, and an alley in which a Ford delivery wagon had been stranded. This was the terraced garden below her boudoir, this was to be her scenery for— I mustn't, I mustn't. I'm nervous this afternoon. Am I sick? Good Lord, I hope it isn't that. Not now. How people lie, how these stories lie. They say the bride is always so blushing and proud and happy when she finds that out, but I'd hate it. I'd be scared to death. Some day, but— Please, dear nebulous lord, not now. 
bearded, sniffy old men sitting and demanding that we bear children. If they had to bear them, I wish they did have to. Not now. Not till I've got hold of this job of liking the ash pile out there. I must shut up. I'm mildly insane. I'm going out for a walk. I'll see the town by myself. My first view of the empire I'm going to conquer." She fled from the house. She stared with seriousness at every concrete crossing, every hitching-post, every rake for leaves, and to each house she devoted all her speculation. What would they come to mean? How would they look six months from now? In which of them would she be dining? Which of these people whom she passed, now mere arrangements of hair and clothes, were turned into intimates, loved or dreaded, different from all the other people in the world? As she came into the small business section, she inspected a broad-beamed grocer in an alpaca coat, who was bending over the apples and celery on a slanted platform in front of his store. Would she ever talk to him? What would he say if she stopped and stated, I am Mrs. Dr. Kennicott. Some day I hope to confide that a heap of extremely dubious pumpkins as a window display doesn't exhilarate me much. The grocer was Mr. Frederick F. Ludelmeyer, whose market is at the corner of Main Street and Lincoln Avenue. In supposing that only she was observant, Carol was ignorant, misled by the indifference of cities. She fancied that she was slipping through the streets invisible, but when she had passed, Mr. Ludelmeyer puffed into the store and coughed at his clerk, I seen a young woman. She come along the side street. I bet she is Doc Kennicott's new bride. Good looker, nice legs, but she wore a hell of a plain suit, no style. I wonder she pay cash. I bet she go to Howlin' and Gould's more as she does here. What you done with the poster for fluffed oats? 2. When Carol had walked for thirty-two minutes, she had completely covered the town east and west, north and south, and she stood at the corner of Main Street and Washington Avenue and despaired. Main Street, with its two-story brick shops, its story-and-a-half wooden residences, its muddy expanse from concrete walk to walk, its huddle of fords and lumber-wagons, was too small to absorb her. The broad, straight, unenticing gashes of the streets led in the grasping prairie on every side. She realized the vastness and the emptiness of the land. The skeleton iron windmill on the farm a few blocks away, at the north end of Main Street, was like the ribs of a dead cow. She thought of the coming of the northern winter, when the unprotected houses would crouch together in terror of storms galloping out of that wild waste. They were so small and weak, the little brown houses. They were shelters for sparrows, not homes for warm, laughing people. She told herself that down the street the leaves were a splendor, the maples were orange, the oaks a solid tint of raspberry, and the lawns had been nursed with love. But the thought would not hold. At best the trees resembled a thinned woodlot. There was no park to rest the eyes. And since not Gopher Prairie but Waukeman was the county seat, there was no courthouse with its grounds. She glanced through the fly-specked windows of the most pretentious building in sight, the one place which welcomed strangers and determined their opinion of the charm and luxury of Gopher Prairie, the mini-mashie house. 
It was a tall, lean, shabby structure, three stories of yellow-streaked wood, the corners covered with sanded pine slabs purporting to symbolize stone. In the hotel office she could see a stretch of bare, unclean floor, a line of rickety chairs with brass cuspidors between, a writing-desk with advertisements in mother-of-pearl letters upon the glass-covered back. The dining-room beyond was a jungle of stained tablecloths and catsup bottles. She looked no more at the Minnie-Mashie house. A man in cuffless shirt-sleeves with pink arm-garters, wearing a linen collar but no tie, yawned his way from Dyer's drug store across to the hotel. He leaned against the wall, scratched a while, sighed, and, in a bored way, gossiped with a man tilted back in a chair. A lumber-wagon, its long green box filled with large spools of barbed-wire fencing, creaked down the block. A Ford, in reverse, sounded as though it were shaking to pieces, then recovered and rattled away. In the Greek candy-store was the wine of a peanut-roaster and the oily smell of nuts. There was no other sound nor sign of life. She wanted to run, fleeing from the encroaching prairie, demanding the security of a great city. Her dreams of creating a beautiful town were ludicrous. Oozing out from every drab wall, she felt a forbidding spirit which she could never conquer. She trailed down the street on one side, back on the other, glancing into the cross-streets. It was a private seeing Main Street tour. She was within ten minutes beholding not only the heart of a place called Gopher Prairie, but ten thousand towns from Albany to San Diego. Dyer's Drug Store, a corner building of regular and unreal blocks of artificial stone. Inside the store, a greasy marble soda fountain with an electric lamp of red and green and curdled yellow mosaic shade pawed over heaps of toothbrushes and combs and packages of shaving soap, shelves of soap cartons, teething rings, garden seeds, and patent medicines in yellow packaged nostrums for consumption, for women's diseases, notorious mixtures of opium and alcohol, in the very shop to which her husband sent patients for the filling of prescriptions. From a second-story window the sign, W. P. Kennicott, Physician and Surgeon, Gilt on Black Sand a small wooden motion-picture theater called the Rosebud Movie Palace, lithographs announcing a film called Fatty in Love, Howland and Gold's Grocery, in the display window, black, overripe bananas and lettuce on which a cat was sleeping, shelves lined with red crepe paper which was now faded and torn and concentrically spotted, flat against the wall of the second story the signs of lodges, the Knights of Pythias, the Maccabees, the Woodmen, the Masons. Dahl and Oleson's Meat Market, a reek of blood. A jewelry shop with tinny-looking wristwatches for women. In front of it, at the curb, a huge wooden clock which did not go. A fly-buzzing saloon with a brilliant gold and enamel whiskey sign across the front. Other saloons down the block. From them a stink of stale beer and thick voices bellowing pigeon German or trolling out dirty songs. Vice gone feeble and unenterprising and dull, the delicacy of a mining camp minus its vigor. In front of the saloons, farm-wives sitting on the seats of wagons, waiting for their husbands to become drunk and ready to start home. A tobacco shop called the Smokehouse, 
filled with young men shaking dice for cigarettes, racks of magazines and pictures of coy fat prostitutes in striped bathing suits. A clothing store with a display of oxblood-shade Oxfords with bulldog toes. Suits which looked worn and glossless while they were still new, flabbily draped on dummies like corpses with painted cheeks. The Bonton store, Hayden and Simons, the largest shop in town. The first-story front of clear glass, the plates cleverly bound at the edges with brass. The second story of pleasant tapestry brick. One window of excellent clothes for men, interspersed with collars of floral peak which showed mauve daisies on a saffron ground. Newness and an obvious notion of neatness and service. Haydock and Simons. Haydock. She had met a Haydock at the station. Harry Haydock, an active person of thirty-five. He seemed great to her now, and very like a saint. His shop was clean. Axel Eggie's general store, frequented by Scandinavian farmers. In the shallow, dark window-space, heaps of sleazy sateens, badly woven galatias, canvas shoes designed for women with bulging ankles, steel and red glass buttons upon cards with broken edges, a cottony blanket, a granite-ware frying-pan reposing on a sun-faded crepe blouse. Sam Clark's Hardware Store an air of frankly metallic enterprise, guns and churns and barrels of nails and beautiful shiny butcher-knives. Chester Dashaway's House Furnishing Emporium, a vista of heavy oak rockers with leather seats, asleep in a dismal row. Billy's Lunch, thick handleless cups on the wet oilcloth-covered counter, an odor of onions and the smoke of hot lard. In the doorway, a young man audibly sucking a toothpick. The warehouse of the buyer of cream and potatoes. The sour smell of a dairy. The Ford garage and the Buick garage, competent, one-story brick-and-cement buildings opposite each other. Old and new cars on grease-blackened concrete floors. Tire advertisements. The roaring of a tested motor. A racket which beat at the nerves surly young men in khaki union overalls, the most energetic and vital places in town. A large warehouse for agricultural implements, an impressive barricade of green and gold wheels, of shafts and sulky seats, belonging to machinery of which Carol knew nothing, potato planters, manure spreaders, silage cutters, disc harrows, breaking plows. A feed store, its windows opaque with the dust of bran, a patent medicine advertisement painted on its roof. E. Art Shop. Proprietor, Mrs. Mary Ellen Wilkes, Christian Science Library, open daily free. A touching fumble at beauty. A one-room shanty of boards recently covered with rough stucco. A show-window delicately rich in error. Vases starting out to imitate tree-trunks, but running off into blobs of gilt. An aluminum ashtray labeled Greetings from Gopher Prairie, a Christian science magazine, a stamped sofa cushion portraying a large ribbon tied to a small poppy, the correct skeins of embroidery silk lying on the pillow. Inside the shop, a glimpse of bad carbon prints of bad and famous pictures, shelves of phonograph records and camera films, wooden toys, 
and in the midst an anxious small woman sitting in a padded rocking-chair. A barber-shop and pool-room. A man in shirt-sleeves, presumably Del Snafflin the proprietor, shaving a man who had a large Adam's apple. Nat Hicks's tailor-shop, on a side street off Main, a one-story building. A fashion-plate showing human pitchforks in garments which looked as hard as steel plate. On another side street, a raw, red-brick Catholic church with a varnished yellow door. The post-office. Merely a partition of glass and brass shutting off the rear of a mildewed room which must once have been a shop. A tilted writing-shelf against a wall rubbed black and scattered with official notices and army recruiting posters. The damp, yellow-brick school-building in its cindery grounds. The state bank, stucco masking wood. The farmer's national bank, an ionic temple of marble. Pure, exquisite, solitary. A brass plate with Ezra Stobody, President a score of similar shops and establishments. Behind them, and mixed with them, the houses, meek cottages, or large, comfortable, soundly uninteresting symbols of prosperity. In all the town not one building save the Ionic Bank which gave pleasure to Carol's eyes, not a dozen buildings which suggested that, in the fifty years of Gopher Prairie's existence, the citizens had realized that it was either desirable or possible to make this, their common home, amusing or attractive. It was not only the unsparing, unapologetic ugliness and the rigid straightness which overwhelmed her, it was the planlessness, the flimsy temporariness of the buildings, their faded, unpleasant colors. The street was cluttered with electric light poles, telephone poles, gasoline pumps for motor cars, boxes of goods. Each man had built with the most valiant disregard of all the others. Between a large new block of two-story brick shops on one side, and the fire-brick overland garage on the other side, was a one-story cottage turned into a millinery shop. The white temple of the farmer's bank was elbowed back by a grocery of glaring yellow brick. One store-building had a patchy galvanized iron cornice. The building beside it was crowned with battlements and pyramids of brick capped with blocks of red sandstone. She escaped from Main Street, fled home. She wouldn't have cared, she insisted, if the people had been comely. She had noted a young man loafing before a shop, one unwashed hand holding the cord of an awning, a middle-aged man who had a way of staring at women as though he had been married too long and too prosaically an old farmer, solid, wholesome, but not clean, his face like a potato fresh from the earth. None of them had shaved for three days. "'If they can't build shrines out here on the prairie, surely there's nothing to prevent their buying safety-razors,' she raged. She fought herself. "'I must be wrong. People do live here. It can't be as ugly as—as I know it is.' I must be wrong. But I can't do it. I can't go through with it." She came home too seriously worried for hysteria, and when she found Kennicott waiting for her and exulting, "'Have a walk? Well, like the town? Great lawns and trees, eh?' she was able to say, with a self-protective maturity new to her, "'It's very interesting.'" Three. 
the train which brought Carol to Gopher Prairie also brought Miss B. Sorensen. Miss B. was a stalwart, corn-colored, laughing young woman, and she was bored by farm work. She desired the excitements of city life, and the way to enjoy city life was, she had decided, to go get a job as a hired girl in Gopher Prairie. She contentedly lugged her pasteboard telescope from the station to her cousin, Tina Momquist, maid of all work in the residence of Mrs. Luke Dawson. "'Well, so you come to town,' said Tina. "'Yeah, I get a job,' said B. "'Well, you got a fella now?' "'Yeah, Yim Jacobson. "'Well, I'm glad to see you. How much you want a week?' Six dollar. "'There ain't nobody pay that. Wait, Dr. Kennicott, I think he marry a girl from the cities. Maybe she pay that. Well, you go take a walk.' "'Yeah.' said B. So it chanced that Carol Kennicott and B. Sorensen were viewing Main Street at the same time. B. had never before been in a town larger than Scandia Crossing, which has sixty-seven inhabitants. As she marched up the street, she was meditating that it didn't hardly seem like it was possible there could be so many folks all in one place at the same time. My, it would take years to get acquainted with them all and swell people, too. A fine big gentleman in a new pink shirt with a diamond, and not no washed-out blue denim working shirt. A lovely lady in a longery dress, but it must be an awful hard dress to wash. And the stores! Not just three of them, like there were at Scandia Crossing, but more than four whole blocks. The Bonton store, big as four barns. My, it would simply scare a person to go in there, with seven or eight clerks all looking at you, and the men's suits on figures just like human. And Axel Eggies, like home, lots of Swedes and Norskas in there, and a card of dandy buttons, like rubies. A drug store with a soda fountain that was just huge, awful long, and all lovely marble, and on it there was a great big lamp with the biggest shade you ever saw, all different kinds of colored glass stuck together and the soda-spouts, they were silver, and they came right out of the bottom of the lampstand. Behind the fountain there were glass shelves and bottles of new kinds of soft drinks that nobody ever heard of. Suppose a fella took you there. A hotel, awful high, higher than Oscar Tollefson's new red barn. Three stories, one right on top of another. You had to stick your head back to look clear up to the top. There was a swell traveling man in there probably been to Chicago, lots of times. Oh, the dandiest people to know here! There was a lady going by, you wouldn't hardly say she was any older than B. herself. She wore a dandy new gray suit and black pumps. She almost looked like she was looking over the town, too. But you couldn't tell what she thought. B. would like to be that way. Kind of quiet, so nobody would get fresh. Kind of, oh, elegant a Lutheran church. Here in the city there'd be lovely sermons, and church twice on Sunday, every Sunday. And a movie show! A regular theater, just for movies! With the sign, Change of Bill Every Evening! Pictures Every Evening! There were movies in Scandia Crossing, but only once every two weeks, and it took the Sorensons an hour to drive in. Papa was such a tightwad, he wouldn't get a Ford. 
but here she could put on her hat any evening and in three minutes' walk be to the movies and see lovely fellows in dress-suits and Bill Hart and everything. How could they have so many stores? Why, there was one just for tobacco alone, and one, a lovely one, the art-shoppy it was, for pictures and vases and stuff, with oh the dandiest vase made so it looked just like a tree-trunk. B stood on the corner of Main Street and Washington Avenue. The roar of the city began to frighten her. There were five automobiles on the street all at the same time, and one of them was a great big car that must have cost two thousand dollars, and the bus was starting for a train with five elegant-dressed fellows, and a man was pasting up red bills with lovely pictures of washing-machines on them, and the jeweler was laying out bracelets and wrist-watches and everything on real velvet. What did she care if she got six dollars a week? Or two? It was worth while working for nothing to be allowed to stay here. And think how it would be in the evening, all lighted up, and not with no lamps, but with electrics. And maybe a gentleman friend taking you to the movies and buying you a strawberry ice-cream soda." B. trudged back. "'Well, you like it?' said Tina. "'Yeah, I like it. I think maybe I stay here,' said B. 4. The recently built house of Sam Clark, in which was given the party to welcome Carol, was one of the largest in Gopher Prairie. It had a clean sweep of clapboards, a solid squareness, a small tower, and a large screened porch. Inside it was as shiny, as hard, and as cheerful as a new oak upright piano. Carol looked imploringly at Sam Clark as he rolled to the door and shouted, Welcome, little lady. The keys of the city are yourn." Beyond him, in the hallway and the living-room, sitting in a vast prim circle, as though they were attending a funeral, she saw the guests. They were waiting so. They were waiting for her. The determination to be all one pretty flowerlet of appreciation leaked away. She begged of Sam. I don't dare face them. They expect so much. They'll swallow me in one mouthful, glump, like that. Why, sister, they're going to love you, same as I would if I didn't think the doc here would beat me up. But—but—I don't dare. Faces to the right of me, faces in front of me, volley and wonder. She sounded hysterical to herself. She fancied that to Sam Clark she sounded insane. But he chuckled. Now you just cuddle under Sam's wing, and if anybody rubbers at you too long, I'll shoo him off. Here we go. Watch my smoke. Sammo, the lady's delight and the bridegroom's terror. His arm about her, he led her in and bawled, Ladies and worser halves, the bride. We won't introduce her round yet, because she'll never get your bum name straight anyway. Now bust up this star chamber. They tittered politely, but they did not move from the social security of their circle, and they did not cease staring. Carol had given creative energy to dressing for the event. Her hair was demure, low on her forehead, with a parting and a coiled braid. Now she wished that she had piled it high. Her frock was an ingenue slip of lawn, with a wide gold sash and a low square neck, which gave a suggestion of throat and molded shoulders but as they looked her over she was certain that it was all wrong. 
She wished alternately that she had worn a spinsterish high-neck dress, and that she had dared to shock them with a violent brick-red scarf which she had bought in Chicago. She was led about the circle. Her voice mechanically produced safe remarks. Oh, I'm sure I'm going to like it here ever so much, and, yes, we did have the best time in Colorado, mountains, and, yes, I lived in St. Paul several years. Euclid P. Tinker? No, I don't remember meeting him, but I'm pretty sure I've heard of him." Kennicott took her aside and whispered, "'Now I'll introduce you to them one at a time. Tell me about them first. Well, the nice-looking couple over there are Harry Haydock and his wife, Juanita. Harry's dad owns most of the Bonton, but it's Harry who runs it and gives it the pep. He's a hustler. Next to him is Dave Dyer, the druggist. You met him this afternoon. Mighty good duck shot. The tall husk beyond him is Jack Elder, Jackson Elder, owns the Planey Mill, and the Minnie Mashie House, and quite a share in the Farmer's National Bank. Him and his wife are good sports. Him and Sam and I go hunting together a lot. The old cheese there is Luke Dawson, the richest man in town. Next to him is Nat Hicks, the tailor. Really? A tailor? Sure, why not? Maybe we're slow, but we are democratic. I go hunting with Nat same as I do with Jack Elder. I'm glad. I've never met a tailor socially. It must be charming to meet one and not have to think about what you owe him. And do you—would you go hunting with your barber, too? No, but—no use running this democracy thing into the ground. Besides, I've known Nat for years. And besides, he's a mighty good shot, and— that's the way it is, see? Next to Nat is Chet Dashaway. Great fellow for chinning. He'll talk your arm off about religion or politics or books or anything." Carol gazed with a polite approximation to interest at Mr. Dashaway, a tan person with a wide mouth. Oh, I know. He's the furniture store man. She was much pleased with herself. Yup, and he's the undertaker. You'll like him. Come shake hands with him. Oh, no, no, he doesn't—he doesn't do the embalming and all that himself. I couldn't shake hands with an undertaker. Why not? You'd be proud to shake hands with a great surgeon just after he'd been carving up people's bellies. She sought to regain her afternoon's calm of maturity. Yes, you're right. I want—oh, my dear, do you know how much I want to like the people you like? I want to see people as they are. Well, don't forget to see people as other folks see them as they are. They have the stuff. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here? Born and brought up here." Bresnahan? Yes, you know. President of the Velvet Motor Company of Boston, Mass. Make the Velvet Twelve. Biggest automobile factory in New England. I think I've heard of him. Sure you have. Why, he's a millionaire several times over. Well, Purse comes back here for the black bass fishing almost every summer, and he says if he could get away from business, he'd rather live here than in Boston or New York or any of those places. He doesn't mind Chet's undertaking. Please, I'll—I'll I'll like everybody. I'll be the community sunbeam." He led her to the Dawsons. Luke Dawson, lender of money on mortgages, owner of northern cutover land, was a hesitant man in unpressed soft gray clothes, with bulging eyes in a milky face. 
His wife had bleached cheeks, bleached hair, bleached voice, and a bleached manner. She wore her expensive green frock, with its passementary bosom, bead tassels, and gaps between the buttons down the back, as though she had bought it second-hand and was afraid of meeting the former owner. They were shy. It was Professor George Edwin Mott, superintendent of schools, a Chinese Mandarin turned brown, who held Carol's hand and made her welcome. When the Dawsons and Mr. Mott had stated that they were pleased to meet her, there seemed to be nothing else to say, but the conversation went on automatically. "'Do you like Gopher Prairie?' whimpered Mrs. Dawson. "'Oh, I'm sure I'm going to be ever so happy. There's so many nice people.' Mrs. Dawson looked to Mr. Mott for social and intellectual aid. He lectured, "'There's a fine class of people. I don't like some of these retired farmers who come here to spend their last days, especially the Germans. They hate to pay school taxes. They hate to spend a cent. But the rest are a fine class of people. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here? Used to go to school right at the old building.' "'I heard he did.' Yes, he's a prince. He and I went fishing together, last time he was here." The Dawsons and Mr. Mott teetered upon weary feet, and smiled at Carol with crystallized expressions. She went on, "'Tell me, Mr. Mott, have you ever tried any experiments with any of the new educational systems? The modern kindergarten methods, or the Gary system?' "'Oh, those!' Most of these would-be reformers are simply notoriety-seekers. I believe in manual training, but Latin and mathematics always will be the backbone of sound Americanism, no matter what these fattists advocate. Heaven knows what they do want. Knitting, I suppose, and classes in wiggling the ears." The Dawsons smiled their appreciation of listening to a savant. Carol waited till Kennicott should rescue her. The rest of the party waited for the miracle of being amused. Harry and Juanita Haydock, Rita Simons and Dr. Terry Gould, the young smart set of Gopher Prairie. She was led to them. Juanita Haydock flung at her in a high, cackling, friendly voice. "'Well, this is so nice to have you here. We'll have some good parties, dances and everything. You'll have to join the Jolly Seventeen. We play bridge and we have a supper once a month. You play, of course." No, I don't. Really? In St. Paul? I've always been such a bookworm. We'll have to teach you. Bridge is half the fun of life. Juanita had become patronizing, and she glanced disrespectfully at Carol's golden sash, which she had previously admired. Harry Haydock said politely, how do you think you're going to like the old burg? I'm sure I shall like it tremendously. Best people on earth here. Great hustlers, too. Course, I've had lots of chances to go live in Minneapolis, but we like it here. Real he-town. Did you know that Percy Bresnahan came from here?" Carol perceived that she had been weakened in the biological struggle by disclosing her lack of bridge. Roused to nervous desire to regain her position, she turned on Dr. Terry Gould, the young and pool-playing competitor of her husband. Her eyes coquetted with him while she gushed, "'I'll learn bridge. But what I really love most is the outdoors. 
can't we all get up a boating party and fish, or whatever you do, and have a picnic supper afterwards?" "'Now you're talking,' Dr. Gould affirmed. He looked rather too obviously at the cream-smooth slope of her shoulder. "'Like fishing? Fishing is my middle name. I'll teach you bridge. Like cards at all?' "'I used to be rather good at bezique. She knew that bezique was a game of cards, or a game of something else, roulette possibly, but her lie was a triumph, Juanita's handsome, high-collared, horsey face showed doubt. Harry stroked his nose and said humbly, "'Bezique? Used to be great gambling game, wasn't it?' While others drifted to her group, Carol snatched up the conversation. She laughed and was frivolous and rather brittle. She could not distinguish their eyes. They were a blurry theater audience before which she self-consciously enacted the comedy of being the clever little bride of Doc Kennicott. These here celebrated open spaces, that's what I'm going out for. I'll never read anything but the sporting page again. Will converted me on our Colorado trip. There were so many mousy tourists who were afraid to get out of the motor bus that I decided to be Annie Oakley, the wild western vampire, and I bought, oh, a vociferous skirt which revealed my perfectly nice ankles to the Presbyterian glare of all the Iowa schoolmams, and I leaped from peak to peak like a nimble chamois, and—you may think that Herr Dr. Kennicott is a nimrod, but you ought to have seen me daring him to strip to his BBDs and go swimming in an icy mountain brook." She knew that they were thinking of becoming shocked, but Juanita Haydock was admiring at least. She swaggered on. I'm sure I'm going to ruin Will as a respectable practitioner. Is he a good doctor, Dr. Gould?" Kennicott's rival gasped at this insult to professional ethics, and he took an appreciable second before he recovered his social manner. "'I'll tell you, Mrs. Kennicott,' he smiled at Kennicott, to imply that whatever he might say in the stress of being witty was not to count against him in the commercial medical warfare. There's some people in town that say the doc is a fair to Midland diagnostician and prescription writer, but let me whisper this to you, but for heaven's sake don't tell him I said so. Don't you ever go to him for anything more serious than a pendectomy of the left ear or a strabismus of the cardiograph." No one save Kennicott knew exactly what this meant, but they laughed, and Sam Clark's party assumed a glittering lemon-yellow color of brocade panels and champagne and tulle and crystal chandeliers and sporting duchesses. Carol saw that George Edwin Mott and the blanched Mr. and Mrs. Dawson were not yet hypnotized. They looked as though they wondered whether they ought to look as though they disapproved. She concentrated on them. But I know whom I wouldn't have dared to go to Colorado with, Mr. Dawson there. I'm sure he's a regular heartbreaker. When we were introduced, he held my hand and squeezed it frightfully. Ha, ha, ha! The entire company applauded. Mr. Dawson was beatified. He had been called many things lone shark, skinflint, tightwad, pussyfoot, but he had never before been called a flirt. He is wicked, isn't he, Mrs. Dawson? Don't you have to lock him up? Oh, no, but maybe I better, attempted Mrs. Dawson, a tint on her pallid face. For fifteen minutes Carol kept it up. She asserted that she was going to stage a musical comedy, that she preferred café parfait to beefsteak, that she hoped Dr. Kennicott would never lose his ability to make love to charming women, 
and that she had a pair of gold stockings. They gaped for more. But she could not keep it up. She retired to a chair behind Sam Clark's bulk. The smile wrinkle solemnly flattened out in the faces of all the other collaborators in having a party, and again they stood about hoping but not expecting to be amused. Carol listened. She discovered that conversation did not exist in Gopher Prairie. Even at this affair, which brought out the young smart set, the hunting squire set, the respectable intellectual set, and the solid financial set, they sat up with gaiety as with a corpse. Juanita Haydock talked a good deal in her rattling voice, but it was invariably of personalities. The rumor that Ramy Weatherspoon was going to send for a pair of patent leather shoes with gray button tops, the rheumatism of Champ Perry, the state of Guy Pollock's grip, and the dementia of Jim Howland in painting his fence salmon pink. Sam Clark had been talking to Carol about motor-cars, but he felt his duties as host. While he droned, his brows popped up and down. He interrupted himself. Must stir him up. He worried at his wife. Don't you think I'd better stir him up? He shouldered into the center of the room and cried, Let's have some stunts, folks. Yes, let's, shrieked Juanita Haydock. Say, Dave, give us that stunt about the Norwegian catching a hen. You bet, that's a slick stunt. Do that, Dave cheered Chet Dashaway. Mr. Dave Dyer obliged. All the guests moved their lips in anticipation of being called on for their own stunts. "'Ella, come on and recite Old Sweetheart of Mine for us,' demanded Sam. Miss Ella Stobody, the spinster daughter of the Ionic Bank, scratched her dry palms and blushed. "'Oh, you don't want to hear that old thing again.' "'Sure we do. You bet,' asserted Sam. My voice is in terrible shape tonight. Tut, come on! Samley loudly explained to Carol. Ella is our shark at elocuting. She's had professional training. She studied singing and oratory and dramatic art and shorthand for a year in Milwaukee. Miss Stobody was reciting. As encore to an old sweetheart of mine, she gave a peculiarly optimistic poem regarding the value of smiles. There were four other stunts, one Jewish, one Irish, one juvenile, and Pat Hicks's parody of Mark Antony's funeral oration. During the winter Carol was to hear Dave Dyer's hen-catching impersonation seven times, an old sweetheart of mine nine times, the Jewish story and the funeral oration twice. But now she was ardent, and because she did so want to be happy and simple-hearted, she was as disappointed as the others when the stunts were finished and the party instantly sank back into coma. They gave up trying to be festive. They began to talk naturally, as they did at their shops and homes. The men and women divided, as they had been tending to do all evening. Carol was deserted by the men, left to a group of matrons who steadily pattered of children, sickness and cooks, their own shop-talk. She was piqued. She remembered visions of herself as a smart married woman in a drawing-room, fencing with clever men. Her dejection was relieved by speculation as to what the men were discussing, in the corner between the piano and the phonograph. Did they rise from these housewifely personalities to a larger world of abstractions and affairs? She made her best curtsy to Mrs. Dawson. She twittered, "'I won't have my husband leaving me so soon. I'm going over and pull the wretch's ears.' 
She rose with a jeune-feel bow. She was self-absorbed and self-approving because she had attained that quality of sentimentality. She proudly dipped across the room, and, to the interest and commendation of all beholders, sat on the arm of Kennicott's chair. He was gossiping with Sam Clark, Luke Dawson, Jackson Elder of the planing mill, Chet Dashaway, Dave Dyer, Harry Haydock, and Ezra Stobody, president of the Ionic Bank. Ezra Stobody was a troglodyte. He had come to Gopher Prairie in 1865. He was a distinguished bird of prey, swooping thin nose, turtle mouth, thick brows, port-wine cheeks, floss of white hair, contemptuous eyes. He was not happy in the social changes of thirty years. Three decades ago, Dr. Westlake, Julius Flickerbaugh the lawyer, Merriman Petey the congregational pastor and himself had been the arbiters. That was as it should be. The fine arts—medicine, law, religion, and finance—recognized as aristocratic. Four Yankees, democratically chatting with but ruling the Ohioans and Illini and Swedes and Germans who had ventured to follow them. But Westlake was old, almost retired. Julius Flickerball had lost much of his practice to livelier attorneys. Reverend, not the Reverend, Petey was dead. And nobody was impressed in this rotten age of automobiles by the spanking grays which Ezra still drove. The town was as heterogeneous as Chicago. Norwegians and Germans owned stores. The social leaders were common merchants. Selling nails was considered as sacred as banking. These upstarts, the Clarks, the Haydocks, had no dignity. They were sound and conservative in politics, but they talked about motor-cars and pump-guns and heaven only knew what new-fangled fads. Mr. Stowbody felt out of place with them. But his brick house with the mansard roof was still the largest residence in town, and he held his position as squire by occasionally appearing among the younger men and reminding them by a wintry eye that without the banker none of them could carry on their vulgar businesses. As Carol defied decency by sitting down with the men, Mr. Stowbody was piping to Mr. Dawson, "'Say, Luke, when wast Biggins first settled in Winnebago Township? Wasn't it in 1879?' "'Why, no, twant,' Mr. Dawson was indignant. "'He came out from Vermont in 1867. No, wait, in 1868 it must have been, and took a claim on the Rum River, quite a ways above Anoka.' "'He did not!' roared Mr. Stowbody. He settled first in Blue Earth County, him and his father." "'What's the point at issue?' Carol whispered to Kennicott. "'Whether this old Duck Biggins had an English setter or a Llewellyn. They've been arguing it all evening.' Dave Dyer interrupted to give tidings. "'To tell you that Claire Biggins was in town a couple days ago? She bought a hot water bottle. Expensive one, too. Two dollars and thirty cents.' Yaw! snarled Mr. Stowbody. "'Course! She's just like her granddad was. Never save a cent. Two dollars and twenty—thirty, was it? Two dollars and thirty cents for a hot water bottle? Brick wrapped up in a flannel petticoat just as good, anyway.' "'How's Ella's tonsils, Mr. Stowbody?' yawned Chet Dashaway. While Mr. Stowbody gave a somatic and psychic study of them, Carol reflected, are they really so terribly interested in Ella's tonsils, or even in Ella's esophagus? I wonder if I could get them away from personalities. Let's risk damnation and try." 
There hasn't been much labor trouble around here, has there, Mr. Stowbody? she asked innocently. No, ma'am, thank God, we've been free from that, except maybe with hired girls and farmhands. Trouble enough with these foreign farmers. If you don't watch these Swedes, they turn socialist or populist or some fool thing on you in a minute. Of course, if they have loans, you can make them listen to reason. I just have them come into the bank for a talk and tell them a few things. I don't mind their being Democrats so much, but I won't stand having socialists around. But thank God we ain't got the labor trouble they have in these cities. Even Jack Elder here gets along pretty well in the planing mill, don't you, Jack? Yep, sure. Don't need so many skilled workmen in my place, and it's a lot of these cranky, wage-hogging, half-baked skilled mechanics that start trouble, reading a lot of this anarchist literature and union papers and all. Do you approve of union labor? Carol inquired of Mr. Elder. Me? I should say not. It's like this. I don't mind dealing with my men if they think they've got any grievances, though Lord knows what's come over workmen nowadays, don't appreciate a good job. But still, if they come to me honestly, as man to man, I'll talk things over with them. But I'm not going to have any outsider, any of these walking delegates, or whatever fancy names they call themselves now, bunch of rich grifters living on the ignorant workmen. Not going to have any of those fellows butting in and telling me how to run my business." Mr. Elder was growing more excited, more belligerent and patriotic. I stand for freedom and constitutional rights. If any man don't like my shop, he can get up and get. Same way if I don't like him, he gets. And that's all there is to it. I simply can't understand all these complications and hoop-de-doodles and government reports and wage scales and God knows what all these fellows are balling up their labor situation with, when it's all perfectly simple. They like what I pay them, or they get out. That's all there is to it. What do you think of profit-sharing?" Carol ventured. Mr. Elder thundered his answer, while the others nodded, solemnly and in tune, like a shop-window of flexible toys, comic mandarins and judges and ducks and clowns, set quivering by a breeze from the open door. All this profit-sharing and welfare work and insurance and old-age pensions is simply poppycock, enfeebles a workman's independence, and wastes a lot of honest profit the half-baked thinker that isn't dry behind the ears, and these suffragettes and God knows what all Badinsky's there are that are trying to tell a businessman how to run his business. And some of these college professors are just about as bad. The whole kitten billin' of them are nothing in God's world but socialism in disguise. And it's my bounden duty as a producer to resist every attack on the integrity of American industry to the last ditch. Yes, sir." Mr. Elder wiped his brow. Dave Dyer added, "'Sure, you bet. What they ought to do is simply to hang every one of these agitators, and that would settle the whole thing right off. Don't you think so, Doc?' "'You bet,' agreed Kennicott. The conversation was at last relieved of the plague of Carol's intrusions, and they settled down to the question of whether the Justice of the Peace had sent that hobo drunk to jail for ten days or twelve. It was a matter not readily determined. Then Dave Dyer communicated his carefree adventures on the gypsy trail. Yep, I get a good time out of the fliver. About a week ago I motored down to New Wurttemberg. That's forty-three—no, let's see, it's seventeen miles to Belldale, 
and about six and three-quarters, call it seven, to Torgenquist, and it's a good nineteen miles from there to New Württemberg. Seventeen and seven and nineteen, that makes, uh, let me see, seventeen and seven's twenty-four, plus nineteen, well, say plus twenty, that makes forty-four. Well, anyway, say about forty-three or four miles from here to New Württemberg. We got started about seven-fifteen, probably seven-twenty, because I had to stop and fill the radiator, and we got along, just keeping up a good steady gait." Mr. Dyer did finally, for reasons and purposes admitted and justified, attain to New Württemberg. Once, only once, the presence of the alien Carol was recognized. Chet Dashaway leaned over and said asthmatically, "'Say, uh, have you been reading this serial too out in tingling tales? Corking yarn! Gosh, the fellow that wrote it certainly can sling baseball slang!' The others tried to look literary. Harry Haydock offered, "'Juanita is a great hand for reading high-class stuff, like Mid the Magnolias by this Sarah Hedwig and Butts, and Riders of the Ranch Reckless. Books. But me—' He glanced about importantly, as one convinced that no other hero had ever been in so strange a plight. I'm so darn busy, I don't have much time to read." "'I never read anything I can't check against,' said Sam Clark. Thus ended the literary portion of the conversation, and for seven minutes Jackson Elder outlined reasons for believing that the pike-fishing was better on the west shore of Lake Minimashi than on the east, though it was indeed quite true that on the east shore Nat Hicks had caught a pike altogether admirable. The talk went on. It did go on. Their voices were monotonous, thick, emphatic. They were harshly pompous, like men in the smoking compartment of Pullman cars. They did not bore Carol, they frightened her. She panted, "'They will be cordial to me, because my man belongs to their tribe. God help me if I were an outsider!' Smiling as changelessly as an ivory figurine, she sat quiescent, avoiding thought glancing about the living-room and hall, noting their betrayal of unimaginative commercial prosperity. Kennicott said, "'Dandy interior, eh? My idea of how a place ought to be furnished. Modern!' She looked polite, and observed the oiled floors, hardwood staircase, unused fireplace with tiles which resembled brown linoleum, cut-glass vases standing upon doilies, and the barred, shut, forbidding unit bookcases that were half filled with swashbuckler novels and unread-looking sets of Dickens, Kipling, O. Henry, and Elbert Hubbard. She perceived that even personalities were failing to hold the party. The room filled with hesitancy as with a fog. People cleared their throats, tried to choke down yawns. Men shot their cuffs and women stuck their combs more firmly into their back hair. Then a rattle a daring hope in every eye, the swinging of a door, the smell of strong coffee, Dave Dyer's mewing voice in a triumphant, "'The Eats!' They began to chatter. They had something to do. They could escape from themselves. They fell upon the food—chicken sandwiches, maple cake, drugstore ice cream. Even when the food was gone they remained cheerful. They could go home any time now and go to bed. They went, with a flutter of coats, chiffon scarfs, and goodbyes. Carol and Kennicott walked home. "'Did you like them?' he asked. "'They were terribly sweet to me,' 
Uh, Carrie, you ought to be more careful about shocking folks, talking about gold stockings, and about showing your ankles to schoolteachers and all. More mildly, you gave em a good time, but I'd watch out for that, if I were you. Wanda Haydock is such a damn cat. I wouldn't give her a chance to criticize me. My poor effort to lift up the party. Was I wrong to try to amuse them? No, no. Honey, I didn't mean— You were the only up-and-coming person in the bunch. I just mean— Don't get on to legs and all that immoral stuff. Pretty conservative crowd. She was silent, raw with the shameful thought that the attentive circle might have been criticizing her, laughing at her. Don't, please don't worry, he pleaded. Silence. Gosh, I'm sorry I spoke about it. I just meant— But they were crazy about you. Sam said to me, That little lady of yours is the slickest thing that ever came to this town, he said, and Ma Dawson, I didn't hardly know whether she'd like you or not, she's such a dried-up old bird, but she said, Your bride is so quick and bright, I declare, she just wakes me up. Carol liked praise, the flavor and fatness of it, but she was so energetically being sorry for herself that she could not taste this commendation. "'Please, come on, cheer up!' His lips said it, his anxious shoulders said it, his arm about her said it, as they halted on the obscure porch of their house. "'Do you care if they think I'm flighty, Will?' "'Me? Why, I wouldn't care if the whole world thought you were this or that or anything else. You're my—well, you're my soul!' He was an undefined mass, as solid-seeming as a rock. She found his sleeve, pinched it, cried, "'I'm glad. It's sweet to be wanted. You must tolerate my frivolousness. You're all I have.' He lifted her, carried her into the house, and with her arms about his neck she forgot Main Street. End of chapter 4